Amen. Please be seated. Our sermon text for this evening is John chapter 1, in verses 3 through 5, continuing to make our way into the prologue of the Gospel of John. The sermon is entitled, In Him Was Life. In Him Was Life. I'll read the first five verses of John chapter 1. Would you give your full attention now to the reading of God's living and active Word? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the Word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you asking that you would grant to us light, enlightenment through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit this evening, that as your Word is read and preached, we might behold in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ to the light of your glory, that we might grow in our saving understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might trust more fully in Him and know that our lives are ultimately bound up in His indestructible life. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, beloved, this evening we continue with the gospel according to John. This morning, of course, we were briefly introduced to the book, noting its reception as the inspired word of God, along with its genre, authorship, date, occasion, structure, purpose, and major themes. (coughs) We also began our exposition of the gospel with its first two verses, noting how essentially those verses have been or how essential, I should say, those verses have been to the development of the church's doctrine of the Holy Trinity, particularly in the way the intellect, word, and father-son analogies help us to understand the divine processions or persons. As a son proceeds from his father and yet shares a similar nature with his father, so God the Son proceeds from God the Father, and the two share an identical nature. And as a word proceeds from an intellect eminently, that is, involving no distance between the originator and the originated, so the word proceeds from God eminently. In other words, what distinguishes the Father from the Son is not, is not the divine being or perfections or attributes, but relations of origin, which involve eminent processions imminent fromness, processions which, again, include no distance between the originator and the originated. Now, when we apply this same pattern of origination to the Holy Spirit, as we did this morning, uh, very basically, we see the basics of the Christian doctrine of the Holy Trinity. The Father is the originator of the Son by by, by virtue of His act of begetting and the Son's reception of that act as the only begotten. And the Father and the Son, as a single principle of origination, 
are the originator of the Holy Spirit by virtue of their act of spirating or breathing out and the Holy Spirit's reception of that act as the one spirated. But all four acts, namely begetting and being begotten, spirating and being spirated, are again eminent processions such that the originator and the originated share the identical divine nature or substance or being. And thus we confess in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2 and paragraph 3, in the unity of the Godhead, in the unity of the Godhood, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy, Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. So in our text for this evening, we move from what the Word is by virtue of His eternal being, which is what John has in view in verses 1 and 2, to what He is by virtue of His works. And that's what He has in view in verses 3 through 5. And we'll divide our text into two sections. The first, verses 3 and 4, where we see the Word as Creator, the Word as Creator, And then second, verse 5, we see the Word as Redeemer. So let's begin in that first section there, verses 3 through 4, the Word as Creator. Look again at verse 3. The text says, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So having begun His gospel with those familiar words, in the beginning, which as we saw this morning, allude back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, the evangelist now connects this Word who was with God and was God from eternity with God's creative work. Genesis 1 and verse 1 says, in the beginning God. John 1 and verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. John puts the Greek word logos, which is translated Word, where the Hebrew word Elohim, which is translated God, should go. And thus he teaches the full deity of the Word. But now John goes even further. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 continues saying, In the beginning God created, created the heavens and the earth. And so now we read in John chapter 1 and verse 3, All things were made through Him. In other words, this Word is not only God by virtue of His his eternal being, but also by virtue of His creative work. But to guard against misunderstanding, John couples his affirmation with a denial. We see the same sort of rhetorical device throughout his writings. For example, just a few verses below, he describes John the Baptist with the affirmation, He came to bear witness about the light. That's an affirmation about the ministry of John the Baptist. But then he couples that affirmation with a complimentary denial. He was not the light. Again, in chapter 3 and verse 18, the apostle affirms, whoever believes in him, believes in the incarnate Son, is not condemned. There's the affirmation. But then he offers a denial saying, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. This is what we see in verse 3. Having made an affirmation saying, all things were made through Him, 
John then follows it with a complimentary denial, saying, and without him was not anything made that was made. And thus, the apostle presses home his point emphatically that the Word who was with God and was God in the beginning is God the Creator. The Word or Son, pardon me, the Word or Son is the same divine being and performs the same divine work as the Father. But what about this preposition through? John doesn't say all things were created by him, which wouldn't necessarily be wrong, but through him. Why does he choose to say it that way? Well, as we've already noted, the reason can't be due to any difference in eternality or power. The difference can't be one of divine substance or essence or being or nature. Clearly, John is not suggesting that the Son himself was created or was in any way lesser than the Father in the act of creation. Nonetheless, there is an order to the way God creates, which we see faint shadows of in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And this is where the use of the intellect word analogy helps us even further, not only with coming to the conclusion that the procession of the Son from the Father is an imminent one, but also in another way. Genesis 1 describes God's work of creation in terms of His speaking. And thus we teach our children from the Shorter Catechism, question number 9. The work of creation is God's making all things of nothing. How? By the word of his power. God's work of creation is communicative. He speaks it forth. Just as a person's words reflect their minds, or we might say, just as the word who proceeds from the Father is a perfect reflection of the Father, So God's words reveal His mind, which is to say, Himself. And so while the phrase, word of God's power in Shorter Catechism 9 is not a reference to the Son, but to the words of Genesis 1 and 2, nonetheless, given the fact that the Son is the final word through which the Father reveals Himself, Think Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, John chapter 14 and verse 9. The point still holds. In Genesis chapter 1, we not only see a divine speaker, but a divine word that is spoken, and also a breath or spirit proceeding from that divine speaker in his work of creation. These, I would suggest to you, are faint shadows of the way God orders all His works, including His work of creation. The Father creates through the Son in the power of the Spirit. That's what the preposition through serves to signify in verse 3. And this ordering of God's works is rooted in 
and reveals the eternal relation of origin between the Father and the Son. The Father created all things through His Word, that is, His Son, because the Son proceeds eternally from the Father. It would not be fitting for the Son to create through the Father, but it is fitting for the Father to create through the Son. Now, one other thing to note about verse 3 is the change in verb tense. John begins with the aorist tense, which we don't have in the English. He says, were made. All things were made. This signifies the work of creation as a whole completed act, as a single act. But then he moves to the perfect tense, saying, was made. And this signifies the continuation of that creative act and the continuing existence of all things in Him. All the things we see around us and some of the things that we don't see were created from nothing by the Father through the Son and continue to exist by the working of the same. The latter work is what we've traditionally called His works of providence. Later in chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus will teach explicitly, saying, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And there He is most clearly referring to God's works of providence. What He's saying is He does the works of providence with the, with the Father. This is much like what Hebrews chapter 1 teaches about God's works of creation and providence saying that the Son is the one through whom the Father created the world, and that He, the Son, upholds the universe by the word of His power. The Son is the same Creator God as the Father, and thus owed all our glory and honor and praise. Look now at verse 4. John continues, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. John can sometimes read quite cryptically because he has so much invested in these words, life and light. And you see it as you make your way through not only his gospel account, but also his epistles. John uses the word that's translated life 36 times in his gospel, more than twice as much as any other New Testament author in a single book. This is one of his major themes. I came, I came, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it abundantly. Chapter 10 and verse 10. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3, verse 16. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Chapter 6 and verse 51. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. Chapter 5 and verse 40. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Chapter 11, verses 25 through 26. 
And so with his special focus, or with his focus, I should say, in verse 4, on the life that was the light of men, John now shifts from a consideration of God's work of creation as a whole to a consideration of his work to create particular creatures, namely image bearers, human beings. And with that shift, he takes up God's covenant with man, which included the promise of eternal life. Wherever we see the idea of life, glorified life, consummate life, abundant life, eternal life, in the text of Holy Scripture, what we're talking about is the covenant promise God made to Adam from the beginning. One thing that made Adam and Eve different from the rest of the creation was the special fellowship that they enjoyed with God as God's image bearers. We see this fellowship in the way that God created Adam. We read of this just a moment ago. Unlike the other creatures which God simply spoke into existence, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 says that God formed Adam's body from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That is said of no other creature. The picture there is one of tender care. And then God does something, again, that's very different. Up to that point, God had spoken about and even to His creatures, but He hadn't yet covenanted or bound Himself to any of them. And then in chapter 2 and verses 16 through 17 of Genesis, God covenants with Adam and with all his posterity in him. As Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7 in paragraph 1 says, that they might have fruition of him. Listen to how beautiful this is. That they might have fruition of him as their blessedness and reward. So Adam wasn't simply created in covenant fellowship with God. He was promised, consummate, glorified, eternal covenant fellowship with God on condition of His own works of obedience. He was promised, as 2 Peter chapter 2 and, or chapter 1 and verse 4 teaches, creaturely participation in the divine nature. This is the life that was in the Father and the Son, which served as the light of men. As Adam walked according to this light, keeping covenant with God, he would continue in the enjoyment of God and eventually enter into that consummate fellowship, which is glorified life with God. Of course, Adam broke the covenant, rebelling against God, and thus forfeited that promise of life. He turned away from the light to the darkness and was lost, which is why the Father sent the Son into the world. Jesus tells us as much when He prays to the Father in chapter 17 and verse 3, that high priestly prayer. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, 
the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And he tells us where this life comes from in chapter 5 and verse 26, saying, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. This life is the very being of God in whom we live and move and have our being. Through the covenant of works in Adam, life was forfeited. Through the covenant of grace in Christ, it is received. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 and verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And again, the psalmist writes, Psalm 36 and verse 9, For with you, for with you, O God, is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Light is also one of the major themes of John's gospel. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, chapter 8 and verse 12. And again, he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world, chapter 9 and verse 5. And again, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness, chapter 12 and verse 46. In other words, just as a lighthouse directs the way of a ship such that it harbors safely. So in the beginning, the covenant promise of life directed the minds and affections of humanity toward God, the giver of life. And the God to which it directed humanity was just as much the Son as the Father. Or we might say more precisely, it directed humanity to the Father through the Son. That brings us to verse 5, where we see the word as redeemer. The word as redeemer. Look again at verse 5. The text says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Just as God created light on the first day of the creation week, such that The light dispelled the darkness, so John now appeals to that same image to signify the sending of the Son for our salvation. He speaks similarly in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 8, which says, At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John makes very clear in that text that the time when the true light began to shine was the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses the images of light 
and dark to signify the antithesis between good and evil. We see the same throughout the Bible. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, the Spirit says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And later in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, the Apostle John says, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. In Christ's first coming, we see the spiritual warfare that has existed since the time of humanity's fall into sin, reaching its climax. We see the light of divine righteousness and life shining in opposition to the darkness of human sin and death. Just as the light that was created on the first day shined into the darkness and pushed back the darkness, as it were, so Christ was sent into the world to overcome the curse of sin and death, to push that curse back, as it were. Later in John chapter 3 and verses 19 through 21, which we read in our assurance of pardon this evening, Jesus teaches Nicodemus saying, and this is the judgment the light by which he refers to himself. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is a spiritual contrast. This is an ethical contrast. The Word or Son who is the light has shined into the darkness in the sense that He was sent into this sinful world to redeem His elect people from the curse of sin and death. As John says in verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The Son came into the world by assuming unto Himself a human nature, both body and soul. As verse 14 says, the Word became flesh. And thus this One who was simultaneously fully God and fully man, two natures united in the one person, the eternally begotten Son of God, gave Himself up unto the covenant curse of death, that we might receive the covenant blessing of life in Him. John further describes this light saying, the darkness has not overcome or comprehended it. In other words, because this light is the self-sufficient divine life, which is the very being of God, He could not fail in His mission. Jesus actually secured the salvation of all those He came to save. He teaches this later in John chapter 6 and verse 37 when He says, all that the Father gives to Me, that is the elect, will come to Me, will eventually believe by the effectual call of God. And whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. In other words, I will save to the uttermost. 
Then again, in chapter 6 and verse 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's in this sense that the darkness has not overcome the light. Humanity in the estate of sin and misery cannot comprehend the light on its own terms. And thus Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But praise be to God that the estate of sin and misery stands no chance against the grace of the gospel. The curse of death stands no chance against the blessing of life which the Son purchased for us at His first coming. Praise be to God that wherever the light of Christ shines into the hearts of men, wherever it shines into the world through the church, through the regenerating and indwelling Holy Spirit, the darkness cannot overcome it. What we see, beloved, in this text for this evening is this cosmic struggle between good and evil, but it is not a fair fight. It is not a fair fight. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. In our text for this evening, we've seen even more of the wonderful and mysterious doctrine of the Holy Trinity. We've also seen the way the eternal triune nature of God is revealed in history through His works of creation and redemption. All things were made by the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Just as the Father is self-sufficient, having life in Himself, so the Son and the Spirit are the same. This is the life. This is the life that Adam forfeited by breaking the covenant of works in the beginning. Creaturely participation in that divine life. It's the life that is fellowship with the Father through the Son. It's the life that the Father sent the Son to secure for us in in His obedience unto death and His resurrection from the dead. The gospel by which we are saved is thoroughly Trinitarian. The same God who creates through His Son in the power of His Spirit brings forth a new creation through His Son in the power of His Spirit. While darkness persists in the world that now is, it cannot overcome this light. Love, did you know your life is not ultimately bound up in you? If you are united to Christ by faith, your life is not ultimately bound up in you. It is bound up in the only begotten Son in whom is life eternally. first question of the Heidelberg Catechism speaks of the one to whom we belong. Why should we be comforted not only in life, this life, but also in death, 
How can a person find comfort in death? The only way you can find comfort in death is knowing your life is not bound up in you. If it is, you will die. But if your life is bound up in the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for you, though you die, you shall live. This light pierced the darkness at Jesus' first coming. This life, this life defeated death at Jesus' first coming. Death is the last enemy to be destroyed, but he is not the last enemy to be defeated. He has already been defeated at Jesus' first coming. Indeed, just as the Son was sent by the Father to be life and, and light in the world, so He sends His church out to deliver the good news of this life and light in Him telling His disciples in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14, along with the crowd that followed Him, you, now think about this for a moment in light of John's focus on Jesus, the light of the world. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. This is why Christians in the early church were called Christians. It means little Christs. You are to be a little Christ to your neighbor, to one another, bearing life and light, showing by example and also by declaration what you say with your mouth, the thoughts you think, the desires you harbor in your heart. Showing the world what Christ looks like. Showing the world that He is the life and the light of the world. In Him was life, and the light, life was the light of men. Let's pray. Father, we give You thanks for Your Word. We thank You for this particular text and what it teaches us about the glory of of the incarnate Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, the Word who was with God and who was God in the beginning. We give you thanks that all things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. We give you thanks that in Him was life and the life was the light of men. Father, we confess to you that none of us deserves this abundant life, this eternal life, this glorified life, which is ours by right, which has already begun in us by the working of the Holy Spirit who has made us a new creation. But you in your grace and mercy have lavished this life upon us, enlightening us, enlightening our minds, enlightening our hearts, that we might know you, the one true and living God,
and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We pray that you would uh, grant us hearts of generosity, hearts of faithfulness, that we might follow the example of our Lord and Savior, taking the form of a servant and taking this same life and light which is born in our hearts by the Holy Spirit through our faith union with the Lord Jesus Christ into a lost and dying world. Would you grant that we might serve as light within the city of Lynchburg and beyond, and that the life of God might be evident among us and active in bringing sin-dead sinners back to life. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.